Hi everybody, welcome back to Up To Some Good. This episode is all about condiments. So you know how some people say crackers are just a vehicle for condiments? I'm definitely on the same boat. My favorite condiments are probably sriracha or Dijon mustard, unless of course, spreads count too. In which case, it would definitely be almond butter and raspberry jam. So my guest today is a condiments queen. She's Jenny Costa, the founder of Ruby's in the Rubble. I actually found out about Ruby's during a startup accelerator event. Someone mentioned Ruby's in the Rubble as a really good example of a mission-driven food brand. I remember finding the name really catchy and immediately looked it up. Jenny started her conscious condiments brand Ruby's in the Rubble when she found out that one third of the food produced is wasted each year. Growing up in a farm in Scotland, Jenny had always been close to the sources of her food as a child. The Chinese she grew up eating became part of the inspiration behind Ruby's in the Rubble. She first launched the brand in her own kitchen as a passion project after deciding she wanted to take action against food waste. Then, after realizing she had bigger ambitions for the project, she left her full-time job in finance to focus on Ruby's. Now, eight years after launching her brand, her condiments are available in supermarkets and food stores around the UK, like Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Whole Foods, and Fortnum and Mason. We covered so many things during our conversation, including the gargantuan problem of food waste, how one of Ruby's most popular condiments, the spicy tomato sauce, is made, the challenges that surfaced because of COVID and Brexit, her decision not to raise seed funding from the get-go, and my favorite part, their banana ketchup. And if you haven't yet tried Ruby's in the Rubble, I definitely recommend their spicy ketchup. I just bought some yesterday and I'm in love with it. Now, I'd like to share our conversation with you so you can find out why Jenny is up to some good. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you very much. First of all, I just really wanted to say that the name Ruby's in the Rubble is really catchy and I love it. How did you come up with that? It was a play on um, one of the very first nights that I cycled to a wholesale fruit and veg market. And it was about three in the morning and it was where fruit and veg is sold on large scale to get into shops fresh for us the next morning. And I came back from that market having seen pallets of unsold produce that had come from Kenya and Holland. And it was in such a huge amount. And I thought this is like diamonds in in the rough. Like there's this, you know, there's so much resource and beauty in what's being thrown away. And it was a play on that rubies in the rubble of, of finding things in what other people consider as discarded. So right. on that first night, I was just like, I'm going to call it rubies in the rubble. Or I'm going to start making condiments, a natural way of preserving this fruit that I could see there was value to. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that you actually grew up in a sustainable farm in Scotland, right? Did you grow up being very close to food and close to what you ate? Yeah, we had a very, I mean, we've got a very small farm on the west coast of Scotland in the least populated area in Britain. And we we were very close to, I mean, food was the majority of our day was spent around either in the vegetable garden or with the cows out in the field. Mm. I had a pet lamb. I had a pet pig. We actually ate my pet pig, Josephine. Oh, um, no. So I, <laughs> I was very close to food. And I think um, it was an amazing upbringing for really seeing the value in it and how much work and energy goes into producing yeah. food that sometimes when you go into a supermarket, you can almost forget that that bowl of pasta was started from wheat and it was grown in a field and how much work has gone into then getting it into that packet in a beautiful shape for for us to consume so yeah it was an amazing I think it really shaped where I how I then got passionate food and and food resources right and did you have a favorite sauce or condiment growing up well my mum we we actually didn't have the classics or the ketchups and things in our house Mm -hmm. my mum because she was such a keen gardener she would always create different condiments for throughout the winter so we had her 
her rhubarb chutney, which sounds very bizarre, but it was always in the I middle of our kitchen table. Yeah. And this was like tangy and spicy and it kind of went with everything. You could have it with a salad or with some cheese or with your eggs. Yeah, I was brought up on rhubarb chutney rather than most children probably are brought up on ketchup uh, in the UK. But it was it was that was definitely my favorite condiment. Right. And what would you eat that with? We literally would have it with pretty much every meal. It's because of its sweetness and spice. It's kind of similar to, I suppose, a, a condiment really is giving that bit of flavor on the side of a plate. And it's it was tangy and sweet. Mm-hmm. It had ginger in it and a bit of cayenne pepper. We'd have it alongside pretty much every meal, alongside our rice dishes, alongside oh salad, God. alongside cheese. Yeah, that sounds yeah amazing. it was a go-to. I know that after university, you went into a career in finance, which you weren't very inspired by. Can you tell me a little bit more about your career journey and how you then decided to start Rubies in the Rubble? Yeah, I I did a master's in mathematics and I naturally sort of, without even thinking about what I wanted to do in life, I followed everyone else in my degree and sort of everyone was looking for jobs in finance. And I, I graduated in 2010 and it was a very hard time to find jobs. I was very fortunate. I got offered a job in a hedge fund and I had zero interest or idea about finance at the time it was a really it was actually a fantastic I was there for two and a half years and I loved the team I I, you know I learned a huge amount more I think my biggest learning from there was that any company when you haven't worked in a business before it's quite scary going into a company Mm -hmm. when you're young and you sort of question what these big companies with lovely big glass doors do inside them and you sort of realize that no one's perfect and it's really a company it's just a group of people all with the same aim trying to do it well and I think that was a real eye-opener to me that I could start any company and as long as it's not rocket science science really it's like there's yeah. no smoke and mirrors it's just getting getting things done and a team of people really trying to fight in the same direction and um, so yeah I was there for two and a half years and although I loved the team and things I kept thinking if I'm here when I'm 40 I, I this is not something that I'm passionate about and I want to spend my time doing something that I'm really passionate about and I can look back and think I'm so proud of what what I've set up and so I was starting to look into different things and one day I read an article about bin divers and it just got me looking into food sustainability food waste the more I explored about it the more I was like I want to create a fun solution to this that raises awareness of this need to see food as a precious resource so I think it was on the back of two things I think I think having researched food waste and at the time in 2010 it was quite a hippie notion no one was talking Mm. about food waste or food sustainability but some of the basic things of agriculture is the the uh, single largest impact that we as humans have on our planet from a water consumption from deforestation but it also has a huge carbon footprint if it was a country its carbon footprint would be the third largest after China and America so it's it has a huge impact food waste and whilst the the population is growing and um, by 2050 we expect to double our food supply yeah and yet we're still throwing away a third of everything that we produce and it just seems crazy to me that the single thing that has the biggest impact on our carbon footprint we waste a third of it and I really wanted to raise awareness of how did we get to this place that food seems like a cheap commodity that we could afford to waste and there was no environmental sort of attachment to it that we would we would carry a keep cup not use a plastic yes. bag but yet, yet we'd throw away half of our fridge and I, I wanted people to see food as this precious resource that you can't afford to waste that much it's it's got a huge carbon footprint to it it's a confusing one to get your head around but because it's compostable the, the actual energy going into growing that food and then we waste a third of it is we just can't continue to go on like this so that was sort of the catalyst that really made me want to raise awareness and change and then going along seeing it visually seeing pallets and pallets of food that seemed perfectly good just getting thrown in the bin was what was was where I really thought 
it actually made me think of my mum's vegetable garden and how she, whenever she had an abundance in harvest, she would turn it into a jam or a condiment that we would enjoy months and months to come. And so I thought that's a traditional way of preserving fruit and veg is making condiments. And so that's exactly what I'll do. I'll create a fun brand that makes condiments and um, and prevents food. Yeah, I love that. So the the food waste and the surplus fruit and vegetables that you um, source, all of this is from the farms or from supermarkets that that discard of the fruits and vegetables? Uh, so we, we originally started working with wholesale markets. And then as we grew bigger, and we realized that actually the, the, the true waste or the area of waste that we wanted to work on, which was normally specification so it might be the size shape and color mm-hmm. of a fruit or veg or it could be the supply and demand that that we've had an amazing crop of tomatoes this summer but yet the demand for tomatoes hasn't gone and supermarkets oh. need those tomatoes to arrive within a 15-day life so that it can sit on the supermarket shelf and then sit in your fridge and if a farmer they do a prick test on the tomatoes but if the farmer has a lot of tomatoes that only have an eight-day life or that are very nice and ripe um, they're going to fail the specification to go through so we started working direct with farmers and, and we still do and so we'll take pallets or tons of fruit or veg that is is out of spec and would otherwise be wasted and then turn it into a, a product we normally we, ha- we give ourselves about two or three days to then turn it into a condiment that's extends shelf life for up to two years and also adds value to it yeah wow i mean i think it must be quite difficult though to deal with produce that is you know has an expiry date and then to have to immediately turn it into a condiment i'm really curious about the whole production process can you so what, what's your most popular condiment? Well, so our mayonnaises have expanded hugely. So our, our plant-based yeah. mayonnaises and then ketchup or tomato or spicy tomato has probably been our longest standing relish as well. Right. Um, so say for the spicy tomato sauce, can you give me a run through of what the production process is like? Yeah. So tomatoes are harvested in general and sort of the end of summer is their biggest har- harvesting time. We will work direct with a farmer and take out of spec tomatoes. Normally from historic sort of years, they have between 20 and 40% of the crop that's out of spec. And normally we take by the tonnage. So we'll take it sort of three or four tons of those tomatoes that might have failed a prick test for a supermarket. So they, the supermarket wants it with 15 day life. They might have a 10 day life on it. So mm-hmm. then we will put it into a lorry, take it to our manufacturing unit and within two days have turned it into the spicy tomato. We'll do big batches throughout the harvest as well um, because we know that we can then sit on it for, for up to two years and then sell it off. And, that. and the, the beauty with the condiment as well is the longer it's been in the jar, the, the stronger the flavours and the spice mm. um, is. Um, so that's the way that we make the spicy tomato. But there are other things like for pear harvest, for example, the harvest is 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 only a couple of weeks, whereas the tomato harvest will pretty much be throughout most of the, the later summer. And so with pear harvest, we will take a, a lot of surplus pears and normally from a cooperative of pear farmers, and then we puree them and can them so that they're in, it's not a sort of small can, it's in a 250 kilo can, so a really big drum. And whenever we do a production run of tomato ketchup, which oddly has got pears in it instead of sugar, we, we will- Oh, wow. So one. you replace the sugar with pear sauce. 
Yeah, well, when we were looking at ketchup, the two biggest ingredients in ketchup are actually water and sugar. And so mm-hmm. we thought to make a really big impact on taking surplus fruit and veg, we'll target those two. And from a flavor point of view, we still have half sugar, half pear, because we always say that flavor comes first, like it has to perform like a ketchup. And the, the pear sugar wasn't um, giving it that sort of edge and the, the what people expect from a ketchup. So we've replaced half of the sugar and all of the water with these pears. By putting it in a can, we've almost preserved it in a very natural natural way the pear puree and so whenever we're doing a production run we just crack open a can and put in the pear puree so we can then we draw off and use those cans all all of the year we have to do a forecast on what we think we'll sell for the next year and then we wait for the next harvest to to, to do our next production of cans so right. it is a, our supply chain is very complex it's it's definitely yeah. the part of our business that's taken the longest it's been the hardest to get manufacturers on board with what we do as well and wanting to take our crazy ingredients and weird formats but it's it's why we exist as well right and talking about supply chains i mean i think covid has probably disrupted a lot of supply chains throughout the world everybody has become more aware of like the lack of resilience of supply chains basically especially if they import food a lot and i was wondering even though you mostly source from within the uk i assume did covid disrupt any of your supply chains yeah i I think the food industry the supply chain was crazy throughout it so the the increase in people getting home deliveries for example with Mm -hmm. with amazon and the amount of cardboard cardboard was a huge shortage at one point because everyone was getting cardboard boxes sent to their door and so it it was a crazy sort of uplift in cardboard demand and so we'd often have product but we couldn't sell it into the supermarket because you can't put it in the cardboard box that they expect it to be delivered in so that they can handle it to go on the shelves and we had a shortage in glassage a glass as well so that was another big problem we had a shortage in caps at one point so oh we had gosh, to stop wow. supply. Yeah. So yeah, it's been quite a crazy um, journey of sort of. I think the most recent, which luckily the government sort of supported, was people getting pinged in warehouses or on our in our manufacturing. So one person, their child has had COVID and gets, and then they can't go to work, and anyone that they've seen for the last three days can't go to oh. work. And so suddenly the manufacturing site closes down. Or, right. Um, the warehouse and so you've often got orders and you're like I just I've, I've made it all but I can't get out of the door because the warehouse is closed so that yeah it's been it's been a really mental time but it at least we're all in the same boat. I think I think our biggest stress on the business was pre-COVID, 80% of our business was serving restaurants. So we weren't very focused on retail at all. I really love working with chefs and we were building the brand out by working with Marriott and different pub groups and the Pig Hotel and Hicks. And then obviously because of COVID, all closed overnight in March and all of our team were, you know, we, we had a huge sales team that were just focused on restaurant sales. So it was a really hard time to sort of manage headcount and try and keep people employed but also pivot the business to be focused on retail and it sounds a sort of simple pivot but when a lot of manufacturers don't want glass in their factories because of breakages and things um and so all of our manufacturers were 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 making ketchup in bulk formats and suddenly having to pivot to find a manufacturer in the middle of covid that might be able to put something in glass so that we can supply a supermarket mm. it was a really a big feat but we we succeeded and we launched in morrisons and and waitrose it's sort of in the middle of covid but it was yeah it's been a it's been a crazy uh, year and only one i think people I think I've definitely aged a lot in the last year, but you, you can only laugh about it. <laughs> so you mean the retail forms of your product just launched recently? And before that, 
you mainly worked with restaurants and hotels. We did have retail formats, but we were working with really small manufacturers mm. that can't turn it on if you suddenly get a launch with Morrison's, for example. So we did have our retail formats, but our main bulk of the business was was in different formats. So it was suddenly sort of if we were to grow, we had to find new manufacturers. To do. And when no manufacturer wanted to speak to anyone in, in the middle of COVID because everyone was fighting with you know staffing problems, people are getting pinged the whole time, shortages of everything. So then to learn somebody else's recipe and start making it and getting new crazy ingredients in and having to sort of yeah. certify everything, it was it was a real a real challenge. Right. Oh my goodness. And I know that even before that, because of Brexit, you also face some challenges in your supply chain already. Yeah, I mean, I think we're really seeing actually a lot of things from Brexit coming up now, which uh, which more I feel so sad for a lot of farmers. So, for, for example, where our pear and apple farmer um, isn't picking his apples and pears on his trees this year because he can't afford to. Because normally he would bring in European workforce, and this year because he can't with Brexit, he can't afford or he can't get the British staff willing to work. So we're getting a shortage in apples and pears this year. The harvest is also not looking very good. So we're we're getting problems with that, but I I see it more and more as well with manufacturing sites where they normally do 24-hour shifts and suddenly they can't get the staff to do a 24-hour shift because normally they would have brought in foreign staff. My father as well recently went to see a pig farmer and the slaughterhouse for killing the pigs is normally ran by by Eastern Europeans, which they now haven't got anyone to work in the slaughterhouse. And so he had weeks and weeks of pigs all stuck in this barn, but no one will take them. And he said it was just so depressing and awful to see. They were so packed in and and every week 250 pigs are being born and with nowhere to go they're just getting squashed into this mm. barn so yeah you sort of I, I feel like we're seeing it more and more throughout the supply chain of more from a staffing point of view and then delays huge delays in terms of right coming in and out of the country but it's sort of momentary another strain straight after covid it feels like there's there's not much let up at the moment so i mean with starting any business i'm sure there are a lot of challenges do you think this whole sourcing and supply chain part Part of Rubies in the Rubble is your main challenge or have you also faced other challenges when you like throughout your whole eight years? Yeah, I, I mean, I think every startup has got the challenge of you're a new brand on, on the shelf. You're bringing something else to the market and no one's heard of you and the, the shelves are packed already or whatever people are using other services and you've got to convince them to use you that they've never heard of so we've had all the same challenges of sort of how do you actually sell your product and how do you make people believe in and take a risk on you I think the other additional challenge for us which especially for the first three years of the business was very focused on our supply chain like how did we ensure that we could use something that most people saw as waste and put it at the center of our business and even sort of getting a specification on that waste that you could, if something went wrong, you could have um, guarantee of exactly where that apple came from in the farm and things. It, it took us a long time to develop that and also to develop our our partners and who we work with. And a lot of people were, were, were not wanting to put in the work to the sort of the extra mile to do that. But at the same time, I think everyone has their unique thing about why they started a business. And I definitely didn't start to make condiment. I, I started to want to use fruit and then 
condiments were sort of the, the side of that. So it was it was sort of always at the heart of what we did and the purpose and why we started the business. But it, it definitely had its challenges, I think, especially I was very, very keen right from the start that I wanted to be a full profit business. And a lot of people said we, at the beginning, we were hiring women from their ex sort of homeless women from mm. a, a kitchen. And people were saying, oh, be I'm a charity. You know, you're using surplus, you're hiring these women, you'll never be a business. And I, I have a strong belief that businesses, we're in a, a capitalist society, businesses have a responsibility and businesses are the things that shape our society. And we should be creating good and, and making change within business. And so I really didn't want yeah. to be a charity. I wanted to be, a, you know, fully sustainable. I wanted this model to work. We definitely had to make quite a few pivots as we went along. Sadly, we no longer work with the women in the, the kitchen. We outsourced a lot of our production, but at the heart of it was always around food sustainability, food waste. Let's create a home for this and raise awareness around this need to value food again. Mm, because of how much work it takes to source and like work in the supply chain, sometimes you might have to raise the price a little bit. Have you found it sort of achieving a good price parity? Different? I mean, I think especially when you're small and that's sort of for any brand, your price points are always going to be higher um, until you build up volume but for us and I think especially when people think oh it's it's surplus it was going to be thrown away so it must be very cheap ingredients but we're taking produce that's wonky and yeah. weird shape straight from a farm that's fresher than anything else you'll get in the supply chain where most people when you're making a condiment will be buying it pre-chopped from Poland or buying their tomatoes in a can to use so we've got the added sort of thing of, of washing peeling cleaning dicing up very strange shaped producers it does definitely add a cost to to the product but it's why as well I was so passionate making sure that the products were all amazing that they could stand up for the price point that they are and but like that's my mission is the food waste side but when somebody buys into a product mainly they're buying into it because they love the taste of it or they you know they want the product and hopefully second they'll find out what you do and fall in love with it again but I think that any business that has an impact or a social aim to it first of all has to be amazing for for what it does and a secondary is is that people are not going to buy into it twice just because of your cause. They might buy into it once because of your cause, but you've got to then win them over by how great the product is to have a, a sustainable business. Yeah, I definitely do agree. I think that was about to be my next question, which is that a lot of people talk about greenwashing and there are some brands which focus on on their social good and their sustainability, but that itself is not enough. Like the product needs to be a really good quality because as much as people yeah. care about social good, just using that to raise the price may not be enough. So I absolutely agree with what you yeah. said. And I actually haven't yet tried any of the condiments yet, but literally right after I record this podcast, I really want to go down to the the cafe which stocks <laughs> rubies and go buy one of your condiments. So I saw that you have a banana ketchup. Is that what does that taste like? So yeah, the banana taste uh, ketchup is definitely a Marmite product. You either love or hate it. And so we developed it. Bananas are the most regularly thrown away fruit in the UK. Okay. And they also, because they can't go into anaerobic digestion, they take a very long time to de decompose. You can't, um, and, and they create a methane when they go to landfill. So we really wanted to create create something around bananas. And they've also come for such a long journey, getting all the way over here and then thrown away. So we played with, when you get very ripe bananas, a bit like with making a banana bread, everything becomes just very sugary in the banana. So it's, the banana ketchup has got ginger in it. It's got 
cayenne pepper. It's a play on kind of a mango chutney. A lot of people mm. put it on curries, but it, actually banana ketchup is very popular in the Caribbean. It's very good it? with rice dishes, chicken dishes. It's savory. Um, it's savory, yeah. It's mm. got onions in it. It's sort of, it's weird being thinking of bananas because the banana is just almost giving a sweetness to it. You yeah. can definitely taste banana uh, in it, but it's, yeah, it goes really well with a curry dish or wow. anything like that. It's, it's fantastic. Amazing. I might actually get that. So going back to the consumers, do you think when people see rubies like on the shelves, they are actually aware that it's a product that is made to fight food waste or do they know it more of just just as a condiment brand? So I I think most brands, anybody assumes that everyone knows exactly what you do, whereas actually in hindsight, I'm I'm pretty sure that probably under 10% of us of people know what we do. Hopefully they read the story on the back of the jar once they've bought it. But I think standing on shelf, we were very clear of like, we don't actually really tell our message on the front of the jar. So hopefully people just buy us because they want to try the product out and then they they, they they find out what we do. But yeah, yeah, I think it's something that slowly people hear about and know about rather than seeing it straight on the mm-hmm. shelf and knowing exactly what we do. Right. Yeah. But in terms of education, like, I guess it's one thing to, I mean, Ruby's itself is doing a lot to fight food waste by, you know, using surplus fruit and vegetables, but there are a lot of other consumer habits that, that have to change in order to really reduce food waste, right? Like it's just about portioning and about reusing the food and throwing everything away. Do you also try to educate your consumers or the restaurants and hotels you work with about the whole food waste issue? Yeah, I think, I think it's, um, I, I almost think it's more important than the actual the, the part of where we actually reduce food waste through the product so I, I feel like our products are both a practical solution but as a sort of uh, message of what we stand for to have something in your cupboard that hopefully is the it's a reminder of like oh I've got to value my food like or I shouldn't throw mm-hmm. that away or I think I think the education side is so important for any restaurant or customer of ours we give them an impact report so we talk about the the fruit that was saved from what farm, how many kilos of um, fruit they saved from buying us over the year um, and what they've actually saved from a carbon footprint point of view as well. And then from the consumer point of view, all of our social and our on our website is all geared around giving tips around reducing waste in your own home as a, be a reminder to value what you have and, and not waste things. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at your website and I saw that with each condiment, you state how much carbon dioxide people have reduced when they buy the condiment. I love that. When you were trying to secure funding, actually, did the fact that you guys were an ethical and conscious brand make it easier to convince investors or do you think it Um, really make much of a difference i think we are in a really exciting time in the market there is a business case for having a purpose as a brand that consumers i think are are no longer just looking for a product to just serve their basic needs i think they're they're expectant of businesses to stand for better So, so it is really exciting seeing that there is this consumer want to buy into products that do good and to be able to vote with their money i suppose the way that they spend their cash is how they want to shape the, the future of the planet. And so there is an issue of seeing that change happening. I think from an investor point of view, first and foremost, you sort of want to know that it's a good investment. It's going to actually return cash or, or benefit them. But I think people are excited by buying into a, a brand that is doing things in a different way. And there's definitely this momentum. This, I really believe that every child that's born at the moment is sort of another child wanting something different. They're not, it's not sort of just just looking at profit or just looking at sort of getting by. They're 
wanting a, a product and a business and to buy into things that also serve the planet and serve our community. Yeah. And what is your experience with raising funding? Did Rubies and the Rubbles start off with a round of funding or did you sort of use your own money first and then raise funding when the brand was a bit more developed? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone starts businesses in really different ways. Some people put a business plan together, like raise a chunk of cash and then sort of go for it. I think when I was starting Rubies, it was such a passion sort of project that I didn't really know where I was going with it I just knew I wanted to reduce surplus and I knew I wanted to shout about it and like I kind of uncovered something that I couldn't stop talking about so it was definitely a passion project and I think taking on funding as, as well as such a responsibility it's like somebody has invested in you to yeah. put their cash in you to like take it to the next stage and so it took me quite quite a few years to know exactly where I was going with it what I wanted to do if I was if this was seriously a business that I really wanted to expand but about four years after so I had jobs on the side and Ruby so I, was, I was always making condiments and things, but it was sort of quite a, a side um, project. I think deep down, I always knew I wanted to kind yeah. of create right. this company that was a beacon. So um, you quit your job? I quit the job in finance immediately because I couldn't go down part time. And then I became a PA for somebody, which I thought was going to be a really easy job, job but it was the most stressful I'm job sure I've ever had. But anyway, I, I got through <laughs> that. And it was sort of the way it was a fun job. And then it kept me going while I was uh, building and, and running Rubies. And then after about two or three years, I did a proper round of funding. I like I knew where I wanted to take it. I knew it wasn't just about chutneys. I wanted to get out into mainstream condiments. And so I did a small raise of 120K in about 2016. I thought that that was going to kind of last me forever. I feel like as soon as you've got cash, you realize how quickly it goes. And yeah. expanding the team and things. Um, so then did another raise in 2019, which was the perfect timing pre-COVID. And I think any business of really to get through COVID, unless you had a business that was in retail already, but a lot of business that was really just getting through COVID and having a bit of cash in the bank really helped with that. Yeah. Thank God you did the round of funding before COVID. Going back to the period of four years where you were a little bit uncertain about where to take the business, I think it's actually, it's good to hear that there are different types of entrepreneurs and maybe entrepreneurs like you who are just feeling it out and not as black and white with, okay, I'll quit my job and I'll start this. Because sometimes I feel like it's people think that entrepreneurship is like that. And that's what is putting off a lot of people to start something. Whereas for you, you can continue exploring it before fully committing. Can you tell me a bit more about your thought process? What was the hesitation to fully commit to it and really raise funding from the get-go? So I, th I think in my mind, I was sort of fully committed as in I was so passionate about it I think with raising funding you've got to be very clear on where you're taking something and where you're going to go I also think once you've raised funding you're kind of in this wheel of like you're going to then burn through that funding you give them a plan of what you're going to do in the next two years and to then be able to raise again you have to have performed on that plan and I just wasn't really quite ready for that and also as a very very small business we were sort of ticking along that we could sell to we were selling to Borough Market and very small delis we started selling to Jamie Oliver's restaurant we had eight waitroses that we deliver in our little white van and so we weren't making money. We we were very um, bootstrap. Like we didn't, I remember even like we'd deliver into Fortnum and Mason's in recycled cartons. We didn't have like a nice printed box that we have now to deliver in. Mm. And things. So we were really careful with our cash. And I think there was a lot of learnings from that time. But I mean, if I look back on the time, 
and I wanted to do reviews again and very quickly. I think if I knew where I was now, I would have said, right, I'm going to raise money and I'm going to go straight into mayonnaises and I'm going to straighten to ketchup very quickly. I'm going to start working with big manufacturers straight away. But at that time, I think I think we did learn a lot. It was a painful time because it was really it was really hard. But but at the same time, we like learned so much about the fruit and veg and the seasons. Like I know our recipes inside out because we used to make them for two years. I think there's also a lot of respect for Ruby's as well because it's so genuine. Like we came from a really grassroots space, and yeah. people remember us delivering by van, and they sort of saw us on markets, and we interacted with people for so many years that it was sort of on a one to one basis. But it was hard. It's not your sort of dragon's den flying, sort of cash flowing in. It was a really, really hard time. But I was so passionate about what we were doing that I could kind of talk to anyone about it until they got bored. So, yeah, it was a good couple of years, but it was, I think, I think you've got to be true to who you are as well. Like some people are, I wasn't driven in knowing what I wanted then. And now I feel very driven in like, I know exactly where I want to take movies and I'm really, but like, I'm. I'm so excited by the next couple of years coming. I can hear that enthusiasm and passion in your voice. And I love that story. It's beautiful. So what, so continue and tell me more about what your vision is for Ruby's in the next few years. Yeah, we've got it. I mean, it feels like we're growing incredibly quickly at the moment where we're expanding into a lot more retailers. We have developed a range of different flavors of our mayonnaise. Some of them pretty wacky, but you'll hopefully um, see them on shelves next year. We're also looking into different formats of especially with the ketchup when 97% of the market is in a squeezy we want to make sure that we can be in the right format for families and people to use it easily because yeah. getting ketchup out of a glass bottle is sometimes quite painful right and what um, format but we'll, is it in now it's in a glass bottle right it's in a glass bottle I, I mean I will still always use a glass bottle I love the kind of using a glass bottle but a lot of families wanting like I have a three-year-old like I would never give him this glass bottle because he's either empty it all in, on his plate or smash it on the floor or break so it. I yeah see sort of getting in okay yeah getting into that family market sort of getting into something that's easy to use but doing it in the rubies way so we are we're sort of looking into ocean plastic and beach prevented mm. plastic so um beach cleaned so it's yeah it's a really exciting project but it's it's sort of a year and a half development so it's been it's been taking us a while um especially throughout covid but yeah it feels i'm just excited to see our products more and more on the table and to get the message out yeah. um yeah, i'm actually it's, also it's very excited when i see your products in the supermarket even though i haven't tried it yet but uh, whenever I see supermarkets with rubies I just am more drawn to the supermarket so you said you you really learned a lot over the past few years right like as much as it is a journey for you as an entrepreneur it is also a personal journey what do you think is the most important thing you learned about yourself I think because it is such a long journey like looking after yourself is so key Mm -hmm. and and knowing as well how you get energy and where you where you thrive and where you don't thrive like I think a big learning for me was feeling like I had to do everything in the business and had to be good at doing everything. And you realize that you've got to play to your strengths and it's much better to bring in somebody that doesn't have those skill sets to do something. So I'm very slapdash. I love like the, the big vision. I get excited for different projects. I'm always trying to push boundaries and actually having something that's completely the opposite. And so saying, actually, we just got to concentrate on cash flow at the moment. And right. we've got to I'm the same know, you. buckle up. Yeah. And I think it's it's really key to sort of be like, there's a warrant for that, but you don't have to do everything else. Like you're going to be slower at doing your accounts. And actually maybe it's cheaper to bring in somebody that knows how to do those at, at, when you get to a certain stage. And so I learned a lot about that. And also learned a lot about, I'm very strict with 
my rest time as well. I very rarely work over seven o'clock at night or six o'clock. Probably I've got two kids, so trying to sort of spend some time with them. I'm very good at turning off as well. Like unless unless things That's are so really manic and yeah, there's a, there's occasional times throughout the year where I really can't turn off, but in general I can put put it to bed and just I, I cycle everywhere and I find the it's odd, but I find. I, our office has been open throughout the whole of COVID and I find just that little journey cycling to and from work is a time of like switching off and it's the mm-hmm. transition periods I think that's why it's been particularly hard for people in COVID when you've been working from home to actually there's have no that. boundary yeah there's no boundary and there's no separation especially when you can't go anywhere when you when people haven't been able to holiday it's sort of your it's just a continuous exhaustion of like no break and so I think that's super important to even if it's not physically getting away just mentally like closing off and having a a time down yeah exactly for myself when it's around 6 or 6 30 p.m i just try to set a timer and then pause and then either do some meditation or a short yoga sequence just to even if i'm working in my room like just to have a boundary like do something different because otherwise it's so easy especially when i'm in the mode to just keep creating keep working so do you have any rituals in place that you do say in the mornings or in the evenings my only real ritual I mean it sounds really old but I I always stretch every morning and I find I don't know if it's just like in my 30s or whether suddenly I feel like I need that to wake up in the morning but I I used to sort of very do it very occasionally and now even if I go on holiday I'll take my yoga mat with me and I find like even if it's just five minutes in the morning yeah. of just waking everything up yeah. um so I have that I go on and off of not having a phone in the bedroom and I find that like if I'm not sleeping very well I take my phone out of my bedroom for a week or so and I find that just really helps I hate the idea of like the first thing I grab in the morning so I, I try to really pull that away and otherwise nothing crazy like I garden a lot which I find very relaxing we have a very small vegetable garden our beetroot and our spinach and our beans are very good so right. yeah we have a very small vegetable yeah. garden that I'm, I'm very proud of and you cook a lot yourself too yeah I think I mean cooking for some people is either a stress or for me it's like I, I love cooking I cook every night like without even thinking of it as a ritual I love it it's my kind of my relaxing time in the evening I'm in my little zone and yeah I love it yeah yeah it's always important to have your own little thing you know that can help you de-stress so now I want to move on to the up to some good questions that I always ask my guests and the first question is what is the best investment you think you've made over the past year probably my yoga mat yeah which which brand of yoga mat do you use Oh, I actually don't know. I can't remember if it's made of cork or something, but it's like zero slip. It feels lovely to touch. Okay, okay. Yeah. 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 Yoga mats are very important, especially if you do stretching and yoga every morning. Yeah. Um, and from a business point of view, probably zero. It's an accounting online uh, system and it's probably been our best investment. Oh, oh, I have heard of that. It's, it's spelled with X-E-R-O, right? Yes. Okay. X- Secondly, if I gave you a million US dollars, what would you do with it? Oh, a million dollars. I would probably bring all of our production in-house. I would love to have my own huge kitchen where we could go crazy yeah. with different flavors. I, and I think for our growth, we kept all production out of house, but I would love to be able to bring that all in and be playful with different formats and different flavors. And yeah, I would probably go crazy with that. And maybe, I mean, a million dollars might not stretch to it, but have a cafe on the side of it where it was all served from like a condiments cafe. Oh, that would be so highlighting surface. Yeah. And can you tell me about an individual or business that you think has been up to some good lately? Oh gosh, there's so there's so many amazing, amazing sort of smaller brands that I feel like everyone's hearing about. I think from an individual 
point of view, though, I'm going to suggest somebody a little bit, definitely not small business, but Paul Pullman, mm. who was the ex-CEO of Unilever. And he's now created Imagine, which is a platform to help ensure that all big businesses have a purpose at the begin- at, um, at the, the forefront of them and to transform wow. the way that big businesses play. And That's I just really think he's using... Yeah, and he's done some incredible things. And he's a very brave kind of character that really went against the grain, especially when he was the CEO of Unilever. So as an individual, I'd say Paul Pullman. Right. So so imagine as a consulting firm that helps business with... Almost a network of leaders in business that he's growing and expanding and almost giving them, I suppose, that, that community of businesses so saying we're going to stand for better we're going to we can together by having a group of us all make changes that will really impact the planet and I think it's very hard for big businesses especially to do it alone and so suddenly when Mm. they've got a group of them all moving towards different practices but yeah he's I I first heard him speak about 10 years ago when he was um, running Unilever and I was overwhelmed by his vision and bravery around he was the first person that I heard talk about business being a force for good and actually for the, for our planet, we can't not have businesses being this force for good. It might be short-term losses, but overall, by looking after our planet, it's long-term gains because we're going to run out of resources. It's all going to yeah. get very expensive. So let's start looking after it now. Wow. Um, amazing. Yeah. Thank you for, for telling me about him. I'll definitely read up on him and his company. Um, <laughs> so finally, what do you like doing when you feel like you're up to no good no good I love dancing I don't think that's up to no good though no, but no, I love no. a night of just with friends yeah yeah I mean my my husband and I are really strong and strict on first of all date nights and having like I think like making sure that we are really good as a team so having our own time away from children and then similarly with each other like making sure that both of us have our own friends time and yeah, yeah. so yeah a really good night dancing which is probably my my go-to yeah, and dancing is so important. Oh, it feels amazing. I feel like no no one can be sad dancing. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a great, great release. Thank you so much for joining me and up to some good today, Jenny. I've really been looking forward to this because ever since I heard about Rubies in the Rubble, I've been really excited to see it on the shelves and also really excited to speak to you. And talking to you again inspired me even more, like your passion and enthusiasm for creating a good business. I love that. And I'm really excited for what you have in store and to taste all the new condiments that you have coming up as well. So keep up the amazing work. And I will also keep telling, sharing the brand with all my family and friends. So thank you so much. Amazing. Uh, Thank you again for tuning in to Up To Some Good. I'm really happy that you're on this journey with me to learn about individuals and organizations who are giving back to our planet and our society. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on Apple. I also post content updates on our Instagram at up to underscore some good. And if there is a person in your life who you think will benefit from this episode, please share it with them. I always feel that sharing forms of inspiration and knowledge is a way of sending love, especially during COVID when it's difficult to see your loved ones in person. I think this is a really good way to connect and share inspiration. Also, If there is an inspiring individual who you think should be featured on Up To Some Good, please feel free to DM me on Instagram or send me an email via uptosomegood.podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to feature their story. In the meantime, stay healthy, do some good, and see you next time.